Well, as you have already surmised, I'm sure uh, we are continuing on with the Way of Love series, focusing in on the Great Commandment. And during this month of February, we're looking at each one of those elements of what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. That was last Sunday. Uh, Soul, that's today. Uh, Mind, and then strength, or I should say last weekend. Uh, And as Nate has already indicated, we began this series last week by looking at the, the state of our heart. What's the heart necessary if we are going to love God? And we said that we need to begin the journey with a broken and contrite heart. Now, why would that need to be? Well, because in our natural-born state, where our hearts are not inclined to love God. Last weekend, we looked at uh, King David, and we noted that King David had to come to terms with his capacity for evil. And that defining moment in his life was when he realized that he could do things contrary to God's will that were actually catastrophic, Uh, that he got involved with Bathsheba, covered up that whole act of infidelity by having her husband Uriah killed, and this led him to take a look at his soul deeply, and so we read in Psalm 51, 5, surely I was sinful at birth, he says, sinful from the time my brother conceived me. And yet, as we noted, as soon as David came clean, as soon as he became naked before God, God's mercy came running to him and embraced him, and that's the way God works. When we come clean before him, uh, he comes immediately to us to embrace us and bring us to himself. And so I said last week that God never seems to be more pleased with us than when we acknowledge our greatest need of him. God never seems to be more pleased with us than when we acknowledge our greatest need of him. So if we are to love God, we have to start with a converted heart. Now today... I want to explore with you what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all of your soul. And some of you have come to me and said, I I can't wait for this week. What is the soul? And I have wrestled with that myself because the soul seems to be the most elusive concept, isn't it? Now, how do we get our hands around it? It's kind of nebulous and shapeless. The soul, kind of this eerie mist that we can't get a hold of it. Trying to understand the soul is kind of like trying to hug a hologram, right? Trying to get your arms around something to just kind of go right through. What is the soul? It's a lot easier to think of things more concretely around heart, mind, and, and strength, isn't it? Because they relate to something tangible in our life. The heart, that central organ of our body, the mind, the brain from which the nerve centers move out. Strength has to do with our, our physical prowess. But what is the soul? In my book, The Essential Commandment, I consider two different dimensions or ways to understand the soul. The most obvious way the scriptures speak about the soul is that place out of which our deepest longings, desires, and affections seem to pour forth and flow. You you hear the psalmist. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Or on the other side of the ledger, The psalmist says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? So on the one hand, when we think of the soul, we think of that realm of our deepest aspirations, our deepest feelings that emerge from way down deep within, that place of the soul. And if you want to study that more, that's chapter (laughs) 4 in my book. But that's not where we're going tonight. I want to explore another dimension of what it means to love the Lord our God with all of our soul. 
And to get at this, I need to address from the outset a popular misconception regarding the soul by asking the question, where does the soul reside? The common wisdom seems to associate the soul with some kind of ghostly entity within us, uh, which is that internal element that survives death. Yet what I believe we have inadvertently done is we've adopted a Greek or Platonic understanding of the soul. You see, the Greeks saw the soul as, as this entity trapped in the body. That the body was kind of the prison house of the soul. And when we died, then the soul was released uh, into eternity, into that everlasting life. And we tend to have that kind of same concept within Christian understanding, but that is not the Christian understanding of the soul. The soul trapped inside of the body as if the body and soul are at odds with each other. That is not our understanding. Biblically, it's far more accurate to say that we are souls than that we have a soul. To say that we have a soul seems to locate the soul in some mysterious compartment within us. But to say that we are souls means that we are a being who who is immersed and uh, permeated by the soul that goes throughout our whole body, our whole personhood. So I want to demonstrate tonight that this teaching that the soul biblically is to be equated with ourself, individuality, personhood, even our personality. We love God with all of our soul by becoming as fully as possible the unique persons that God created and redeemed us to be. So tonight, I'm going to ask you to think. A discipleship of the mind. Can you be alert enough tonight to think? Uh, This is going to be a little bit more like a college lecture than it is going to be a sermon. And I know that reinforces some of my image to you because that's the way some of you see me. Uh, And so, uh, just endure this for a little while, if you would. Humor me tonight, because I think you'll find that this takes us somewhere into a good place. So, we are souls. All human beings created in the image of God are soulful beings. And I think this is exactly what is described right at the beginning of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when Adam is created, and we see the merger of the physical with the spiritual. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath, the soul of life, and the man became a living being. So the soul integrates. It's the integrating element, in a sense, of heart, mind, and strength. It what brings all of our life together. Soul refers not to an entity within the person, but the entirety of who a person is. I know early in my, my Christian walk, I used to hear people talk about evangelism or witnessing as what? Soul winning. Ever heard that expression? Soul winning? And that used to really rub me the wrong way because I would think, soul winning, are we only trying to snatch people out of the fires of hell to prepare them for eternity? Is that what soul winning is all about? Don't we care about the quality of people's lives now? But when you look at that phrase, soul winning, in actuality, if you use it correctly... It means the redemption of the whole person, that heart, mind, and body, in order to become the full persons that God intends us to be. In the New Testament, the Greek word for soul is psyche. It's equated with the individual, self, life, or personhood. And you might immediately recognize the origin of the word psychology. (laughs) 
Uh, the Greek word for soul, psyche, is the root of psychology. Literally, the study of the soul is what that field of study is all about. Now, Jesus used the word psyche when he pointed the way to the fullness of life. Note how Jesus' words take on new meaning when we, when we insert the word soul for life. For whoever wants to save his life, that's the word psyche or soul, he wants to save his soul, will lose it. But whoever wants to lose his life, soul, for me, and the gospel will save it. Now, is Jesus only concerned here about our eternal destiny? Is he only concerned here about our life forever? No, he's concerned about our quality of life here and now, that we would find life by losing our life in him, losing our soul in him. As C.S. Lewis says, we live our life with immortals. We are moving in one of two directions in life, eternally towards God or eternally away from God. There's only two directions that we can move. And so what the scripture says is that there are two kinds of people. This is what Paul talks about. There are natural soulful people and there are spiritual soulful people. All people are immortal. All people will live forever. (laughs) Some will live forever in the presence of God. Some will live forever having chosen not to be on the same wavelength of God. So if we could look at it this way. This is the way Paul describes the natural soulful person. And so if we get the The image, well, let me get the verse on the screen first and then the image. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So this is the way to to look at this. Human beings are made up of three component parts in a sense. Heart, that's the will. Mind, that's our thoughts. We'll look at that next week. Body, material being, our physical strength and energy. And this is all integrated with the soul. The soul brings the human being together and integrates these parts. The natural soulful person is apart from the wavelength of God, is not on the spirit's wavelength in our life. But then there is the spiritual soulful person. And this is where Jesus begins to talk about having a life that penetrates the natural soulful person to bring us alive spiritually. Notice this word, Holy Spirit, or the word zoe here, that penetrates the natural soulful person to bring us alive and to make us spiritual, and then the result is that we can love God and love our neighbor. So Jesus talks about being soulful, and he adds life to it. What does he say? I have come that you might have life, have zoe. Recognize that word zoe? Here's another Greek word that's the foundation of an English word, zoology. Um, you know, study of living beings, the study of animals. Uh, and this life that Jesus says that he offers to us is the life that's connected to him. We cannot have this life apart from him. Zoe is always connected to Jesus in the Gospel of John. Jesus said of himself, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So in our natural soulful state, we have a mortal life but not eternal life. And Zoe is always associated with eternal life, always is connected with the person of Jesus. That's the only way you can get eternal life is connected with the person of Christ. Jesus had this nighttime conversation, you recall, with Nicodemus. We call it Nick at night. (laughs) Nicodemus slips up to Jesus at night and he asks that question, you know, what must I do uh, to have eternal life or to be born again? And Jesus says, well, you have to be born 
again, or born from above. You have to have this life that's outside of you that comes into the natural soulful person and brings you alive because that's the life that Jesus interjects into us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in summary, John says this about that life in John 3.16. Ever heard this verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. Zoe. Eternal life. And where do we get that? We get that in relationship with Jesus. Eternal life is not something that starts when you die. It's something that begins as soon as you enter into relationship with Christ and then continues on through eternity. And that's exactly the way Jesus defines it here. He says in John 17, 3, Now this is eternal life, Zoe, that you may know the Father and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is relational. It's what we get in relationship with Christ. So in conclusion here, first part of the conclusion, I'm not done yet. Uh, So the goal of this life is to be souls, psyches, alive with Zoe. And so this is why I associate soul with personhood, individuality, self, personality. Or as David Benner says, paradoxically, as we become more and more like Christ, we become more uniquely our own true self. Our fullness of life, our personhood awaits us in Jesus. If any of you have read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, you know he ends it with just this amazing discussion on the nature of our personalities that come alive in Christ. And it's all under the heading of the new man. And he raises the question, if, if we are all to become like Christ, won't we all become sort of cookie-cutter images of each other? Is Jesus intending to sort of cancel out our identity by ourselves giving ourselves over to Christ? And C.S. Lewis says, no, just the opposite. It's only when we give our life to Christ that we become our true selves. And he uses this very interesting analogy. He says, suppose that there were people who had uh, never tasted salt. And uh, you put some of that salt on your tongue and you say, ooh, that's a strong flavor. And then you tell those people, you know, we put this on our food. And somebody who had just maybe tasted salt by themselves and heard that you put that on your food might think, well, the salt is going to be so strong that it's going to cancel out the flavor and all you're going to taste is the salt. Is that what happens? No, the nature of that kind of spice is when we put it on our meat and vegetables and our eggs or whatever, is that it actually draws out the inherent flavor that's there. And that's exactly what Jesus does. When we give our lives over to him, then we become the persons that we were intended to be. And so Lewis goes on to say that when we try to live our lives on our own, apart from Christ, who saves his life will lose it, then we simply really become cookie-cutter images conforming to each other. And then he says this, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him, Christ, take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. There is so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs, all different, will still be too few to express him fully. We made them, he made them all. He invented, as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different men and women that you and I are intended to be. And in that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. By losing our lives for Christ's sake, we gain. And Lewis goes on to say, you know, that's really a principle of life. 
when we lose ourselves, we actually gain. For example, suppose you were going to a, a social event and you really wanted to impress somebody at that social event. The more you are self-conscious about making an impression, the least likely you are to make a good impression, right? Because you're continually evaluating yourself. How am I coming across? Am I impressing this person that I want to be impressed? And in fact, what happens is you become more stilted, you become more self-conscious, and it's the opposite of what you want to see happen. When we lose ourselves, then we become our real selves, lose ourselves into Christ. So the unique self is the soul of the person. It's what we commonly refer to as personality or persona. Professional psychologists will tell you that personality is very difficult to define. James Beck has written about personality like this. He says, human personality almost defies description. The term personality refers to those emotional and psychological features of our immaterial selves that influence and govern how we relate to others. No one is able to draw a line around personality and to define it with great precision. Oh, we can describe factors or characteristics of personality, but you can't really ultimately get your hands around it. Why? Because we are souls. Personality is a mystery. You can't ultimately sum it up. We are all unique we each have our own impression or even aura, not to sound too new agey, but we are all unique persons. I want you to take a moment here. Look around. Look around at people around you. I mean, just come on, take a moment, look around. Any two people look the same? It's okay, you can do that. Isn't it amazing how the soul integrates body, mind, spirit? into these personalities. We are these immortal beings that you can't capture the soul on camera because we have the image of God in us. I don't know about you, that just fascinates me. Now, we live in a psychological age. In our psychological age, we've been trying to kind of define what makes each one of us tick. Any of us taken any of those personality inventories over the years? Yeah, here's a few that I've taken. Myers-Briggs personality typology. How many of you can give your four letters and tell us who you are? Okay, I'm an INTJ. You can figure me out later on. Um, the Gallup Strengths Finders. It measures 35 strengths, gives you your top five once you take this. You know, I have the unenviable uh, highest quality of having responsibility as my highest quality. How dull is that? You know, I'd like to have woo. Woo is one of those qualities where, you know, you just kind of are very uh, affectionately draw people to yourself. The disc profile, the Enneagram, this is something that we use a lot here in our church, of the nine personality types that define our true and false self. Um, the list goes on and on. So, everybody taken one of those? My guess is, yeah, right? So, what are these inventories all about? What's their intent? They're each attempting to define the essence of what makes us unique as persons. And the underlying message is, be who you've been designed to be. Accept your temperament. Build on your God-given strengths. Find joy in fulfilling God's purpose in your life. 
And so if the soul is the unique self that has been designed by God to play a part in God's drama, it would seem that discovering this part is one of the primary ways that we love God, is that we are ourselves fully uh, to the glory of God. So we ask ourselves questions like, what is my purpose? What do I have to offer to the world? What am I made to do? In other words, what's God's will for my life? And this is the way I answer it. That much of the will of God for you is written into you. Much of the will of God for you is written into you. In other words, by looking within and being a steward of our gifts, our natural talents, our intentions and desires, is a primary way we discover who we are and what we have to offer to God. God has made you in a particular way. So the will of God for us is not some elusive thing that we go looking for out there somewhere in the conditions and circumstances of life. Much of the will of God for us is right here. It's written into who we are, the way we think, the way we look at life, the personality that God has given to us. I like the way Eugene Peterson translates Galatians 6, 4, and 5. He says, make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you've been given And then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. To be the soul that God has created you to be. David Benner, I think, has a great commentary on that verse when he says this. Without de-emphasizing the value of the Bible and knowing my calling... I have come to understand an even more basic place in which God's will for me has been communicated. This is in the givens of my being. My temperament, my personality, my abilities, my interests and passions say something about who I am called to be, not simply who I am. If I really believe that I'm created by God and invited to find my place in his kingdom, I have to take seriously what God has already revealed about who I am. This means that for each one of us in this room, there is a consistent design that God has put in our life that we get to live out if we are in touch with the way God has created us. Now, I'm going to use my wife as an illustration here of somebody who operates as a cons- out of a consistent design. Uh, she's out in California now. Don't anybody tell her that I'm using her as an illustration, Okay. Because of the way my wife is wired, she will give shape to her physical environment to suit her creative image of beauty and functionality. This is just in her. No one has to make her do it. It simply emerges out of who she is. I don't have to ask her, honey, uh, spend some time thinking about how you would want to improve the physical quality of our home. I mean, that's just what will happen. So once she gets in her mind some of the changes that would improve our home's appearance, value, comfort, usefulness... Uh, she has thought it out, she's researched it, and uh, she usually comes to me and says, this is what we're going to do. Now, early in our marriage, I guess I thought it was my job to throw cold water on all of her initiatives. After all, they cost money, right? And since uh, I was such a careful and cautious steward of the resources that God had given us, I would always come up with more compassionate, less selfish reasons on how to spend our money. My book budget accepted, of course. And then I came to realize two things. First, once my wife had decided on something, it is far better to acquiesce. 
she was going to win anyhow. Guys, have you figured that out? Have you? Come on, nod. Uh, secondly, and far more importantly, these decisions were an expression of the creative vision that God had planted in her. I was thwarting the very essence of the way my wife was created to be. And by the way, she usually made very good decisions within the budget that we had to function with. So that's just one illustration of the inner design uh, that we have in us and that it gets expressed through us. I've already referenced these other kind of inventories that we can do, but the one that has been most helpful to me is called SIMA, S-I-M-A, System for Identifying Motivated Abilities. It's based upon a major theme around the motivated abilities that you have that serve as the consistent way that God motivates you to operate. And it's in answer to this question. What accomplishments, accomplishments have I achieved for which I derive personal satisfaction? What accomplishments have I achieved for which I derive personal satisfaction? This is not about successes. This is not about how your family of origin told you what you were good at and therefore what you should do. It's not about the way the culture rewards you for things that you that uh, it wants to hold up as valuable. It's simply about what accomplishments have you uh, attained for which you have personal satisfaction, where you can say, for this I was made. I really enjoyed that. It felt like it was consistent with how I was designed, the way I was wired. And this is what uh, Ralph Matson and Arthur Miller, who created the SIMA process, called the, the shape of the will. I call it the shape of the soul. Because there's a consistency of the way we are motivated that we can get in touch with. And Miller and Matson state the pattern is same throughout our life, before and after Christ. And this is the way they put it. Our evidence demonstrates that motivational patterns do not change when a person becomes a Christian. The ingredients seen prior to conversion are seen after conversion. This is disturbing to people who expect otherwise, but perhaps we will better understand our position in Christ if we see that God's intention for us is not a replacement of who we are, but a redemption of who we are. God's creation of us, including our basic motivational pattern, is not bad. Redemption means bringing back us back to the, that which God originally intended. And maybe biblically exhibit A for this is the Apostle Paul. Did the Apostle Paul change his personality from before his conversion to after? Wasn't he the same firebrand afterwards as he was before? Changed his intent, changed his motivation, changed the truth for which he was going after, but he was still hell-bent for election <laughs> after as he was before. It's a consistent pattern uh, in his life. He just got on track doing it to the glory of God. So when I reflect on myself, What's the consistent motivation in my own life? Uh, it's to try to shape people's understanding of their Christian faith. Some on, on a personal level in a relational environment, some through teaching and writing to give shape to the foundations uh, of our faith. That seems to be my consistent motivation. And so here's some of the things I enjoy doing. Uh, this is expressed when I'm sitting face to face with two to four other men around the truth of God's word, sharing our lives with each other deeply. I never get more satisfaction than that face-to-face -face contact and see people come alive and applying the truth of God's Word to the, their daily lives. When I'm teaching about how disciples are made biblically and practically, I get to, to do this around the country in seminars. I'm alive in those moments. 
uh, when I'm trying to tackle difficult subjects, like this one. (laughs) This is the one that I wrestled with the most in my book. What is the soul? How am I supposed to understand that? How can I make it understandable to others and make it concrete? So those are some of the things that I know I am operating consistent with my own design when I'm functioning in that way. What's it for you? What accomplishments for you give you the deepest satisfaction? Now, it's hard to go there because there's so many layers overlaying expectations, cultural expectations, family expectations. You've got to make a living. Things that people are telling you that you're good at, but you're saying, well, that, thanks, I appreciate that, but that's not the deepest place where I, I go to find satisfaction. And so I, let me recommend a resource. We can't cover all this in, a, in 30 minutes. So go to our bookstore and pick up this book, Max Lucado's Cure for the Common Life. Uh, it's his own journey of coming to understand how he's wired and designed. He takes this very same thing, SIMA, S-I-M-A, you know, System for uh, Understanding Integrated Motivations, and works it through and gives you exercises. It's hard, isn't it, to get down to that deep place in our lives. It's hard work to take a look at ourselves, but it's worth that because why? If we are to be the souls that God created us to be, uh, then we need to operate out of that consistent pattern and design of who we are. So we love God with all of our soul when we can relinquish our life to Christ in order to become the unique characters in God's drama that we are intended to be. Let me conclude with this story. There's a story of Rabbi Zusha uh, that I think uh, really dramatizes what we're trying to say here. Rabbi Zusha embodied for his students a man who loved God with all of his heart and soul and demonstrated his life in a generous way. And one day, Rabbi Zusha did not show up to his house of study where he met with his students. And finally, the worried students rushed to his house that evening to find out that uh, the rabbi was in a very weakened state. The students cried out, Rabbi Zusha, what's happened? How can we help you? And the rabbi replied, there's nothing you can do. I'm dying, and I'm very frightened. Well, students were shocked at that statement that he was frightened. He said, did you not teach us that all living things die? And the rabbi acknowledged that that was the case. Then why are you afraid? You've led such a good life. You have believed in God with a faith that is as strong as Abraham's, and you have followed the commandments as carefully as Moses. And the rabbi explained, well, thank you, but this is not why I'm afraid. For if God should ask me why I did not act like Abraham, I can say that I was not Abraham. And if God asked me, Why I did not act like Moses, I can say, I was not Moses. But if God should ask me to account for the times when I did not act like Zusha, what shall I say then? (laughs) To love God with all of our soul is to be what the early church father Irenaeus affirmed, man fully alive to the glory of God. You fully alive to the soul that God created you to be that he has put in you. That's what it means to love God with all of your soul, with all of your personality, with all of who you are. Uniquely you, when you allow the light of Christ to shine through you, you become all that he intends you to be. Let's pray together.
As C.S. Lewis said, Lord, uh, you have invented all these characters in your drama, and we're, we're some of those characters. We're some of those beings that uh, you have made, uh, all with different personalities, motivations, makeup, um, designed for your life in us. And Lord, I pray that we would come fully alive to your intent, that we would glory in your design of us, and as we relinquish our life to Christ, that your light would shine through us, and we would become all that you intend us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.